Hello and welcome to HIMSCast, Connected Health Conference Wrap-Up Edition. My name is Jonah Comstock, I'm Editor-in-Chief at HIMS Media, and I'm here with three members of the HIMS Media editorial team. I'm Laura Levitt, I'm an Associate Editor at Moby Health News. I'm Dave Moyle, I'm also an Associate Editor at Moby Health News. And I'm Susan Morse, Senior Editor for Healthcare Finance News. So we just wrapped the conference, they're breaking everything down in the exhibit hall right now. Everybody's making their way to their hotel room, and we've been here since Tuesday. What have you guys seen? What are some of the big trends that uh, you feel like you're going to walk away from this conference talking about? Well, I uh, covered a session. I was moderated a session, Tail Wags the Dog, which was so informative because it talked about how insurers have to change to stay relevant because employers, which have long been self-insured, are now doing direct contracting, which makes insurers and probably providers a little nervous about what's happening with the whole system of care and how it's being handled and how they're trying to bring down the costs by doing it themselves. So that's going to be an interesting trend going forward. I think we're going to see more of this. What was the most interesting single thing you heard on that session? I think the most interesting thing is that there is money to be saved in health care and that insurers need to do something with their business models if they're going to stay relevant, if, if companies, employers, especially large employers, are going to bypass them. And I think this will be especially true when we see uh, what comes out with Haven Health, the company that's being run by Atul Gawande, formed by Berkshire Hathaway, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Amazon, and how uh, Atul Gawande is talking about taking costs out of the system. At least everybody expects that he is. He hasn't come out and said anything. But there will be more to come on this as we see employers, large employers, with Haven Health having a million-plus trying to do things better than what the current system ha- holds. Yeah, I think I've, I've definitely heard a general trend of, you know, in whether it's providers, payers, or pharma, new players are coming in, big tech is coming in, and the incumbents really have to figure out how they're going to keep up and how they're going to hang with those changes. Yeah. I know one, one aspect of that that uh, Dr. Kavadar talked about at the very beginning was this idea that you know, people are now using telehealth, but they're not using it to talk to their own physician. And if you're, if you're a PCP, uh, how do you make sure that you know, technology becomes a way that you see your patients rather than a way that your patients uh, kind of get taken away from you and end up talking to someone else? There's a real good quote that he had in that session that morning. It was 9% of physicians said that they did a telehealth call within the past month. Does that sound like a mature market to you? And I thought that was a lot of what he was talking about in terms of we have these technologies that are becoming developed, but by no means are these mature. There's still so much more in terms of market penetration, making sure everything's fleshed out, reimbursement, everything. And I think uh, Rob Pavasi made a similar point about Connected Health at the pre-conference um, member summit on Tuesday, where he presented some data from Parks Associates showing that adoption of things like connected weight scales really hasn't moved in a consistent, trendy way since 2013. It's been sort of hovering up in the single-digit percents. So I think one thing this year is you know we're really reckoning with this isn't new anymore, and it's not moving as fast as everybody wants it to move. What about you, Laura? What have you um, observed? 
Yeah, so I went to a lot on behavioral health. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting, I'm really interested in health disparities and kind of looking at that. And this was about behavioral health apps. So like diet changes, that kind of thing. Now I use all of those apps myself and I don't really think about it. Um, but one of the things that the speaker had brought up was talking about how these actually really do have a high bar to entry. So you need to have health literacy, you need to have numeracy literacy, and also nutrition literacy. And so actually, you know, you're trying to say, I'm getting to all these populations, it's direct to consumer, everybody can use it. But actually, you know, I mean, do you need to be a health reporter to use these things? You know, that kind of thing. Like maybe we do need to start talking about this and like, are these consumer, direct to consumer apps actually friendly for everyone? And, and should that be a bar to entry? thought that was really interesting. And I think that ties into the question of what what's the process by which these are being designed? And does that process include all kinds of end users, you know, including different socioeconomic groups, different demographics, different ages. And I think there's been a lot of talk at the conference about patient like co-creation and co-design. And um, I went to one session where it was, it was really interesting because it, I really felt like um, it went beyond the table stakes of, of, I think we've all been to a lot of sessions at a lot of conferences where the main takeaway was just, you should be including patients in this process. But they really went into how you should be including patients and this crucial idea that like you have to include all kinds of patients, you know. And one really striking point was that, you know, if you have a patient uh, advisory council and it's all volunteer, uh, then the only patients who are advising you are the ones who have the disposable income and free time to serve on a volunteer patient council. And you have to think about what, what portion of your patient base fits that bill. Um, the question comes up, too, who owns that data? That was a, a theme in at least two of the sessions I went to. The ONC says patients own it, but getting it and understanding it and knowing how it's being used and sold and bargained uh, with. Uh, for instance, uh, John Sharp of Hims brought up how a pharmaceutical company may say to a patient, we'll give this drug to you that's expensive at a lower cost if you will share your data. Now, it may be for a good purpose, for testing, getting data on a certain disease, but it also brings up a lot of privacy concerns and how data is being used and how much consumers know that their data is being used. How do we make sure that when data is promised to be used for a certain purpose, it's not then used for all kinds of other purposes or sold to someone else? Or Dave, you had something you were going to say. Well. Just rewinding the conversation a tiny bit about the uh, patients taking part of their care. I know Laura and I both spent a lot of time at the Society for Participatory Medicine's annual conference, and that was very much a huge focus there. Their phrasing is healthcare isn't something that you sprinkle onto a patient and then suddenly they're better. It's very personalized, it's very individualized, it changes person to person, and it's one of the largest things going on in their life at that moment. Why? And we have the resources to better involve them and educate them in what's going on, why can't they step forward and have a back and forth with their doctor and say, hey, I think this is going on, or can you explain to me why this is happening? I think I might know what's going on a little bit or have something else to add, because only so much of a patient's care can be seen in their chart. So much more of it is their behavior, their lifestyle, um, their background, their culture, their whoever they're around all the time, so many other factors. And then on the point of data and patient participation, mm -hmm. there's another session that I went to that was um, putting 
I think the phrase is crowdsourcing clinical trials, and it's the idea of bringing this information that's from people, having people become active participants in their clinical trials, um, addressing the underserved. For instance, the NIH is all of us program as a roadmap of combining outreach, cultural outreach, uh, patients actively stepping into the clinical study process and using a bit of tech to do it, and then reaching those underserved populations to make sure that the data and the findings are representative of the people who might need it most. I went to a pharma panel and a lot was kind of on that. I mean, so much is happening off stage, right? Like in, in patient care or clinical trials, like the patient isn't living their life in this bubble. Um, and so that was really interesting, kind of talking about what tools can help clinical trials so you actually see, you know, sometimes drugs go out into the world and what happens. And even talking about, sorry, value-based care, um, same thing, right? Like how do you know if you're providing value? And, and tech kind of becoming that, like how do drug companies know if they're providing value? And same for, you know, provider organizations, are things working? Um, so I've been hearing a lot of that, like helping that offstage kind of thing. I'm glad you mentioned pharma, because I did want to talk a little bit about pharma. I mean, while we were here doing this, the mm -hmm. big news broke about the Pair-Sandoz partnership breaking up. Um, I'm sure we'll hear more about what happened there in the <laughs> coming weeks. But um, I think, I think, Partnerships in general were also a big theme I heard a lot about at the conference, um, how to make them work and maybe how to prevent a situation like that. <laughs> um, I can talk a little bit about what I heard, but I'm curious if any of you picked up on any themes around either pharma or around partnerships. Well, I um, went to a couple of the Tiva pharmaceutical sessions, and at both they talked about the inhalers for asthma will have a sensor device to know if you're using it because apparently more than 50% of patients are not either getting their inhaler or taking it correctly and they can transfer this data to the cloud where it can be downloaded by providers so the doctor, the, your PCP, will know whether you're actually using your inhaler. And I think this is coming out next year. Of course, they said it's, uh, they've been going for this since 2007 and since 2007, Apple has come out with 11 different phones, but they've been trying to come out with this one sensor, and it's such a, a regulatory process to go through. So yeah. many things. They even made an acquisition in that space a few years ago, if I remember correctly. I mean, there's a lot going on in the mobile health news coverage area regarding yeah. the connected inhalers. There's the other companies, the Adherium. There's the other one I'm blanking out, and that's much bigger, yeah. too. ResMed? Uh, well, Propeller. Propeller, yes, there. Who is now owned by ResMed. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Their or acquisitions. Yeah. <laughs> kind of in that space, one of the things um, that's interesting is, you know, I think kind of merging the life science world and the startup world are really different culturally, too. I mean, you have this, you know, life sciences, it takes like, what, like 20 years for a drug to get to market? And then life science, I mean, uh, startups, rather, you're iterating so fast, it's just the culture. So kind of getting those cultures and, and sort of working out what that pathway is going to look like, I think that's, there's still a lot of questions. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's a, another kind of never-ending story in the world of uh, digital health and, and health tech. Uh, but I also think that these conferences, and this show in particular, uh, being as it is a collaboration between Partners Healthcare, which is a provider group, and um, HIMSS, including PCHA, uh, which, you know, which is a really group that focuses on the, the tech side, it, often I find that this conference provides some really interesting stories of, of pilots and collaborations and what to do and what not to do. Um, 
I got to sit down for a sort of a one-on-one -on -one session with Jeff Cutler from Ada Health, uh, who do a, a healthcare triage chatbot, um, and he talked about their collaboration with Sutter, uh, which is really interesting stuff. I'm hoping to have an article up on it at some point. Um, but it was really it was interesting to me was that that was a partnership that worked because uh, the hospital really recognized that they they had to play an active role. They didn't just get to be like the benefactor. Yes, we will deign to let you test your software in our vaunted halls. Um, but they had to, you know, be involved in marketing it and be involved in uh, in you know really pushing to to have success with this technology. So um, yeah, that was one. I guess one lesson I saw. I also heard, you know, another thing I hear a lot is like you have to have a champion. Um, one session I really had an interesting experience of, of a woman who started to ask a question and said, you know, everyone keeps telling us we need to have a champion, but like, how the heck do we get one? There's so many more startups than there are hospitals. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's a hard question. Oh my gosh. And there's so many of those pilots that never end up going anywhere too. And maybe they don't have a champion, but it still keeps propelling along for whatever reason. That's more and more costs being incurred to the hospital, the startups effectively wasting their time if they're keeping up with something that's not going anywhere. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of conversation around, maybe not necessarily here, um, or at least I heard, maybe you have, um, but around pilot fatigue, I think is becoming a huge thing to that point, and a lot of people are starting to, or provider and startup organizations are both looking at it and kind of starting to, to think in the future, maybe avoiding that, or are there ways to kind of still look for good technologies but not pilot it, maybe have seen other studies, things like that. I, I think it's been a big conversation. Yeah, I think you have to strike that balance between, um, you know, staying flexible because not every tech innovation is going to work, but having enough skin in the game and enough commitment that, you know, you're not sabotaging things by uh, by inattention from the get go. I guess. Um, well, I want to wrap up with just sort of a a rapid fire. Um, so I'm going to give everyone a minute to think about this. Uh, <laughs> but one. One quote, one takeaway, um, one summary of, of something you learned uh, this week that is going to stick with you. Uh, I can go first because I do have something on the tip of my mind since I was just working on the story. Session yesterday about VR. I think I've gone to this same VR evangelist panel for the past two or three years and sometimes just this is VR. This is how it works. Here's a patient who says that they would love it, and it's very much the basics. I think this year, I definitely saw one of the first times we're talking about the practical application, the implementation, who's going to pay for it, are there codes, will there be codes? Turns out there's some codes that you can finagle a bit to get other people to pay for your VR therapies, and even just how do you implement it in a hospital, how do you do infection control, um, how do you Make sure that your staff knows how to use it. How do you make sure the patient doesn't steal it and bring it home? There's so many interesting questions there about, okay, we're getting the science behind it down. We know that it's working for certain things and it makes people happy. How are we actually going to bring this into care? Which we hear about VR all the time, so that's to see it actually maybe going somewhere. Um, I have to say what stays with me is uh, ONC, uh, is this title clinical director? Andrew Genninger, mm -hmm. talked about how he did want to see what was in his electronic health record. And there were a ton of things that weren't in there, including an operation for vaginal mesh 
that uh, apparently someone didn't believe that it was not correct that that would be in a in his clinical record um, but he said there are mistakes and this is the record that's being looked at so patients need to take a look they're the best vetting process for their own clinical record and I think that's uh, patients taking more of their own step more control over their health care and if I could make another observation it's not just this conference but every that um, I feel that as reporters, we tend to look at the concerns, the issues that come up and report on those. But I'm always amazed at the advances in clinical innovations that are taking place in healthcare. And from a larger perspective, it's uh, such a, gr uh, a great story to look at how it's improving. Maybe very slowly, but, but improving. Yeah. That's quite positive. Um, yeah, no, I think, I mean, again, I spent a lot of time in pharma, and one of the things that kind of stuck out to me, um, Bob Coughlin from MassBio was talking about how, okay, we're seeing a lot of these big partnerships, so we have like Sanofi's, you know, been in a lot of, is Sanofi the right way to say it? I think so. Okay. <laughs> so we've seen Sanofi, Novartis, a lot of these big names coming in, but there's actually a lot of small pharma companies, and that's something that I think, you know, as a reporter, I'm not looking at quite as much, but it's something I'm going to look at a little bit more in the future, and how it's actually harder for, for them to, you know, maybe implement some of these digital tools, or they don't have all that budget that some of these big pharma, um, that big pharma does, so, you know, therefore, the way that you're going to look at it is going to be different, and it's a space I'd be really interested in exploring in the future. I guess if I had to give mine, I'd say this morning's keynotes, um, both Judson Brewer and, and Kyra Bobinet from Engaged In um, talked about uh, sort of a whole new approach to behavior change. And it really resonated on a, a, a weirdly personal level, I think, because we've all tried to you know, change our diet or do various other behavior change things. Um, and the, the key quote from, uh, from Judson Brewer was that awareness trumps willpower. And the key quote from uh, Kira Bobinette was, mindlessness is the new mindfulness. <laughs> and so to put all that together, I think, I think what I'm taking away from it is that rather than try to sort of power through a behavior change, you have to really, first you have to critically interrogate your own, you know, quote unquote, bad, your undesirable behaviors. And then you have to not call it done on, in replacing those with good behaviors until those behaviors are completely mindless, until they're completely default. Uh, so yeah, all easier said than done. <laughs> but not just personal applications, also I, I think critically they were talking about this as applications for developing these digital therapeutics, these apps, these, these tools for behavior change. And I think that ties us right back to where we started with, we've, it's time to start looking at the data, honestly, seeing the spots where we're not moving that needle, where adoption is just bad, and, um, and talking about how we can. And I think, you know, really understanding how people work, how behavior, how adoption works is, is going to be an important aspect of that. Well, thank you all for joining me. This has been great. Uh, it's been a great show. You can check out Moby Health News and Healthcare Finance News and Healthcare IT News. Uh, our colleague Mike Milliard was also at the show earlier in the week and has already headed home to Maine um, for all kinds of uh, deep dives and some of the stuff we've talked about and some other things too. Thanks so much for joining us.